Good morning, church. I want to invite you to open to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be picking up where we left off last time in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And uh, this is the third message in our study of Isaiah chapter 7 through 12. So uh, we kind of did a mini-series on the, the first six chapters, the kind of the first section of the book. Now we're doing a mini-series on chapter 7 through 12. And uh, this is going to be the third message. I'm planning to do one more. So we'll be covering chapters 9 through um, about midway through chapter 10 this morning. In case you're a visitor and you missed the first two parts, I want to kind of give you an overview of where we've been and where we're going. If you remember, uh, Isaiah chapter 7 through 12 have an alternating pattern of warnings of judgment followed by prophecies of messianic hope. And so I've kind of compared that to a journey which is going to take us through three valleys of judgment interspersed with three mountain peaks of messianic prophecy. So warnings and then hope given to us uh, by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. And as we've kind of gone on that journey in week one, we began in the valley that I've called the great refusal, which is when wicked King Ahaz refused to trust in God and turned instead for help to the wicked pagan king of Assyria. That was the valley of the great refusal. And then we were lifted up by the Lord to the mountain peak of messianic hope as chapter 7 verses 14 through 16 revealed to us the coming of the Redeemer that someday the Savior would come he will be born of a virgin and he will be Emmanuel God with us then we descended back down into another valley in which the rebellion of the nation is discussed in chapter 7 verse 17 through chapter 8 verse 22 and we talked about how the people, instead of obeying the Lord, had fallen into the sins that were described so poignantly in chapter 5 of individualistic materialism, of immersive merriment, and of inverted moralism, where they were calling good evil and calling evil good. But despite the great refusal, the terrible refusal of Ahaz, and the rebellion of the majority of the people, the Redeemer was still going to come and so despite this rebellion, chapter 9 says that the Redeemer is going to come and he will be the ruler. And that is where we left off last time in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So let's read that text again this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, last time we pointed out that chapter 9, verse 1 compares what happens in earlier times, and that's plural, to what happens later on. And this indicates that there will be both near and far and final fulfillments of the prophecies which are given. The Lord revealed the future to the prophets, much like, uh, if we could envision it this way, like a man standing on a mountaintop and seeing the successive mountain ranges out in the distance. He can't necessarily see everything in between them. He just sees the major events, and that's what the Lord is revealing to the prophets. He's revealing major events from the first coming and of the second coming. He's also revealing some of the things that are happening in the nearer term, and so you have sometimes near and far and final fulfillments of prophecy and so that's why we see kind of in one prophecy things that are that were fulfilled at the first coming things which are yet to be fulfilled in the second coming and if you remember last time we also pointed out the interpretive importance of the structure and grammar of this passage chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 we saw that verses 1 through 3 really is the introduction to the prophecy verses 1 through 3 announce the good news that the light of hope is going to dawn the messiah is going to save his people he's going to restore their joy he's going to make them glad with his presence and then verses 4 through 6 is the explanation of how the messiah is going to do that there are three explanatory clauses in verses 4 through 6 all of which begin with the word for. Verse four, he says, for you shall break the yoke of the oppressor. Verse five, for every boot of the warrior will be burned up. Verse six, for a child will be born to us. And so those are the three ways the Messiah is going to bring this restoration of joy and gladness. And then verse seven is the conclusion of the prophecy in which the final results of the Messiah's mission are revealed and summarized. And so verse seven really is a summary of the end results of the Messiah's mission. Well, last time we covered verses one through five, and so we're picking up where we left off last time in verse six. And verse six is one of the most important verses in the Old Testament, so I wanna focus most of our time on verse six this morning, and then we'll cover verse seven a little more briefly, and then at the end of the message, we'll go all the way till the middle of chapter 10. Let's look again at chapter nine, verse six, which will be, our primary focus for today. It says, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. As we explained last week, the series of events which leads to the future restoration of Israel begins with the coming of the Messiah when, as verse 6 says at the beginning, a child will be born. But the question is, and it had to be in the minds of the original readers, who is this child? And what is the child going to do? So that's what we're going to be talking about. What 
this child is going to do and who he is. So let's begin by looking at what the child is going to do, what the Messiah, this coming child, is going to do. And the first thing that he will do is found in that first phrase when it says a child will be born to us. Christ will be sent from heaven. He will, as chapter 7, verse 14 revealed, be born of a virgin, and he will be Emmanuel, God with us. This is a reference to the incarnation. A child will be born to us. This is going to be a human child, a child born to us, to humanity. This is the incarnation, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The second thing the Messiah is going to do is found in the second phrase when it says a son will be given to us. So you have a child will be born to us and now a son will be given to us. I'm kind of going to skip ahead to a little bit of a conclusion here and tell you that I believe that the Apostle John, when he wrote John 3.16, had this phrase of this verse in mind. Because he writes in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. A son will be given to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, that's kind of the conclusion. I want to walk you through why I believe that this is a, a reference here. When I kind of throughout my life as I've read this passage and hadn't studied it in as much depth as I was able to do in the last several weeks, I kind of assumed that this phrase, a son will be given to us, was just a restatement of the first phrase. In Hebrew writing, sometimes there are couplets where someone will say some, uh, something and then that same idea will be repeated in a slightly different way and both of the parts of the couplet basically mean the same thing. And I had kind of always read it that way as saying a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. I thought they both were referring to the incarnation to the birth of Christ. So I thought the phrase a son will be given to us was just another way of saying a child will be born to us with both statements referring to the same event, which is the birth of Christ, the incarnation. But then I realized that, as I was looking at this more deeply, that when Scripture specifically discusses the incarnation, the birth of Christ, it describes it as the Father sending the Son, not as the Father giving the Son. When it talks about Christ's coming, it talks about the word becoming flesh or partaking of flesh and blood. It does not refer to the Son as being given in the incarnation. I want to walk you through a few examples. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, it says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, right? So the incarnation is described with the word group of sending, of the Father sending the Son to take on flesh and dwell among us. John 1, 11 says, he came to his own. So when it's discussing it from the father's point of view, he sends the son, and when it discusses it from the son's point of view, it says that he came. The father sends and the son comes. 
John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 2.14, therefore since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And the point I'm making in, in reading these examples is that the texts which specifically discuss the incarnation don't describe the Lord's birth as when he was given to us by the Father. When scripture uses terms which are conceptually related to the term given, it's almost always specifically referring to the Lord's death on the cross, not to his birth. So when scripture discusses the birth, it talks about the father sending the son, but when it talks about him going to the cross, that's when terms like being given to us or delivered to us is are used. For example, in Acts chapter 2, if you remember from the Easter sermon where I was preaching on Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24 say this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know, right? So he's talking about Jesus' life. Now listen to what he says in verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So here, clearly the, the giving over or the handing or the delivering of the son as a sacrifice for our sin is being discussed with these terms of giving or handing over. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 uses similar terminology to describe the Lord going to the cross as a sacrifice for sin. Romans 4.25 says this, he was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And then Romans 8 verse 32 says this, he who did not spare his son but graciously gave him for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so the, this word group of giving are almost always used in context which refer to the atonement, to Christ dying on the cross for our sins. And so I believe that the reference to the giving of the Son in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is a reference to his substitutionary death in our place as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in the flow of the book of Isaiah, this is an early hint, early in the book, of what's going to be discussed in great detail in Isaiah chapter 53, that the Son will be given to us as that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so a child will be born to us, that's the incarnation, and a son will be given to us. He will give his life as a ransom for many. That refers to the atonement. Well, there's a third answer to what the Messiah will do. Not only will he be incarnate and come, but he will be crucified. And then thirdly, in that third phrase in chapter nine, verse six says, the government will rest on his shoulders. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And then thirdly, the government will rest on his shoulders. Now when you hear the phrase, the government will rest on his shoulders, I hope 
that the United States of America didn't at all enter your mind. Because if it did, you've done something which breaks a major interpretive rule, which is called an anachronism, right? Bringing something from the present, dragging it back 2,700 years and trying to insert it into a text. When this was written, the United States didn't even exist, and so we can be certain this is not referring to America. Now, I hate that I have to say that, but in our day, there is a, what has always been a very, very fringe movement is unfortunately gaining some steam in our day, which is the concept of Christian nas- nationalism, and sometimes they'll kind of take verses like this and just absolutely rip it out of 2,700 years of context and try to apply it to our country. And I hate to break it to you, but America is not God's chosen nation. That is the nation of Israel. So which government is being talked about? The government will rest on his shoulders. Well, what government is he talking about? Well, All we have to do is look one verse later because it tells us exactly which government is being referred to. Verse seven, there will be no end to the increase of his government. So obviously we've, you know, the government will be on his shoulders, verse six. Verse seven, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. What government? And the next phrase answers it. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. So David ruled over which kingdom? I don't know my American history superbly well, but I'm pretty sure David was never king of America. And so I'm confident that this is referring to the kingdom of Israel, not any other modern kingdom. Jesus, this verse is saying, is the one promised in the Davidic covenant when God promised to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and rule over a real kingdom. And that kingdom will last forever, the Davidic covenant says. Jesus is that promised Davidic king, the messianic king who will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign from there for a thousand years and then forever. In fact, in verse seven, we have an indication of both the millennial reign and then the eternal state when it says from then on and forevermore. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But as we've seen, verse six tells us what the Messiah will do. And the first answer is that he will be born to us. That refers to his incarnation. And then secondly, he will be given to us. This refers to the atonement, him being given as the Lamb of God, this substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And then the third answer is that the government will rest on his shoulders, referring to the millennial kingdom. And I've put those three answers to the question of what the Messiah will do on the screen for you. So just again to repeat and summarize, a child will be born to us. This means Christ will be sent from heaven, will be born of a virgin, And this prophecy was fulfilled at the incarnation. This prophecy has already been fulfilled and the New Testament specifically says so. Secondly, a son will be given to us. He will be given to us as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And this prophecy has also been fulfilled. It was fulfilled at the cross. And then third, it says the government will rest on his shoulders. And it says he will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom. 
He will reign over the Davidic kingdom as promised in the Davidic covenant. And this prophecy is still future. It is yet to be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled at the second coming. So that's what the Messiah will do. He will be incarnate. He will die as a substitute for sin. And then he will come to rule and reign. That's what he will do. Now let's look at what verse 6 says about who the Messiah will be. So we've talked about what he'll do. Now who is he? And Verse 6 says, His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. First, the Messiah will be the Wonderful Counselor. Book of James talks about there being two original sources for wisdom the wisdom from on high and the wisdom from below. And he says the wisdom from on high is full of is pure and full of mercy and good fruits and he says that the wisdom from below leads to all sorts of ungodliness and conflict and harm there are ultimately only two fountainheads for wisdom only two springs that you can pull a bucket of wisdom and counsel from and so the question is what spring or what well do you draw from? What well do we as a church draw from? And the answer given here should be very instructive for us. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the only one with perfect love, perfect understanding of man, with power to change. He and he alone is the wonderful counselor. And so if we want the wisdom from on high, it must be sourced in him. It must be sourced in him. And this is one of the reasons why here at Calvary Bible Church we are committed to biblical counseling rather than trying to borrow from the world and their theories and methods. Jesus and Jesus alone is the wonderful counselor. So why would we draw from a well that doesn't begin with him? Well, how do we draw water from the well of the wonderful counselor? Well, we want to pay attention to what the wonderful counselor says. And he has given that to us in his word, the Bible. And so we want to give counsel which comes from the word of God, not from the perverted theories of Freud or the humanistic ideas of Carl Rogers or the Darwinistic methods of B.F. Skinner. That's a different well. And the fact that Jesus is the wonderful counselor is a precious truth and one that we should not pass over lightly. There's hope for broken marriages. There's hope for hurting hearts. There's hope for struggling believers because Jesus is the wonderful counselor and listen to this, he is the only counselor who can work on your issues from the inside because as a believer you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do in the life of the believer according to Galatians 5? He produces fruit and what, are, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That list, those qualities, 
are what people are seeking when they pursue counseling. They have sorrows. They have struggles. They have heartbreak. What are they coming to counseling for? They are coming for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. So where can those qualities be found? From what well must you draw if that's what you're looking for? And the answer is you need to go to the wonderful counselor, the one who made you and knows you and cares for you. You know, people often say, you know, I want to go to a counselor who really cares about me. I will tell you, there is no one but Jesus who has died for you. Go to him. Go to him. As an aside, uh, we want to let you know that biblical counseling is available for every member and attender of Calvary Bible Church, and typically there, that can be scheduled within a week or two. So if you're hurting or you're struggling with something, call the church office and we'd love to walk with you through the trials and temptations of life in this fallen world and open the word of the wonderful counselor with you and seek to help you apply it to your life. Well, next verse six says that not only is is the Messiah the wonderful counselor, but he is mighty God. He is mighty God. You know, this verse clearly shows that the deity of Christ was taught long before his birth. You know, it irks me how, you know, enemies of the gospel, they just spread like super uneducated lies amongst the population, right? And so, you know, you have a whole bunch of people out there who think, you know, look, Jesus was a good teacher, you know, and all this, but then in the centuries after his death, these myths accumulated and legends accumulated and people started viewing him as, as not only a good teacher but, but, a, but a really super spiritual guy and then that kind of morphed into eventually believing that he's God. My friends, don't believe silly things that are demonstrably, provably false. Right here, written 700 years before his birth, is a clear statement that the one who is born of a virgin, the one who comes to save, is mighty God. This was not made up by, you know, some church council in the third or fourth century. It's just ridiculous. People need to, um, you know, up their education level a little bit before believing such trite lies. He is mighty God. He is fully God and fully man. And he is mighty God. He's mighty. He is mighty to save, mighty to protect, mighty to provide, mighty to help. And so he's worthy of your trust. He's the wonderful counselor, the one who is full of compassion and mercy and he is mighty. He has the power you need and the compassion you need. He is mighty God and worthy of your trust. And then verse six says, he will be called eternal father. Now, this one is one that you may have some questions about. How can the God the Son be called eternal father? And I think there's kind of two um, aspects to this. In ancient times, the king of the nation was often called the father of the nation, right? We even, we even use this term, right? I mean, George Washington was the father of 
the nation. So sometimes it refers to the originator of the nation or the one who is king of the nation, referring to uh, both his authority over the nation but also then his care of the nation. And so this phrase, eternal father, I think is a reference to the fact that Jesus is king of the nation and he will reign forever. He's the eternal father of the nation. But there are, of course, Trinitarian implications to this term as well. It's, I mean, it, it's astounding, right, that the child born to mankind is called mighty God and called eternal father. You cannot escape the Trinitarian implications of this. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, that he and the father are one. And he told his disciples in John 14, 9 that if they had seen him, they have seen the Father. He's referring to that great Trinitarian doctrine that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one essence. They are one in essence, though distinct persons. So as I keep saying as we go through Isaiah, if you think the doctrine of the Trinity is strictly a New Testament doctrine or again as the the just silly lies and rumors that are spread amongst the amongst the population say you know oh you know well that too the trinitarian doctrine was developed by the councils hundreds of years after Christ no trinitarian doctrine began being taught within the first few sentences of the bible let us make man in our image god says and there's no real way to get around that, right? I mean, I've heard people say, well, he was talking to the angels. So wait, so you're saying the scripture teaches that we're made in the image of angels? That's clearly refuted by multiple statements. The doctrine of the Trinity begins on page one and goes all the way to the last book of the Bible in Revelation. Well, the last description of who the Messiah is occurs at the end of verse six and it says he is the prince of peace. The prince of peace. I think this is one of the most precious things about the Lord. He is the rightful ruler and his objective is peace. But I wanna encourage you to think a little bit about the concept of peace. There's two basic conceptions of peace that have been out there. One is what I call the I wish there was no evil view of peace. You know, that's the idea that was tried in the late 1930s and to some extent by several nations even into the 1940s where yeah, you know, Hitler and the Nazis are you know, trying to annihilate entire people groups and take over the world, but let's hope that we can just wish for peace. And eventually that was revealed to be as hollow as it truly was and there came a realization there is an unrepentant type of wickedness that has to be defeated in order for there to be peace. How did peace come again to Europe? It was through the absolute total defeat of the Nazi regime. Similarly, when you look on the worldwide scale, we could... Wouldn't it be great if, right, wishful thinking, wouldn't it be great if there wasn't a truly wicked, irreversibly evil being, Satan, and demons, and then people committed to their path, 
deceived by their lies, who join in their rebellion, wouldn't it be nice if we could have world peace without the defeat of the enemies of God? But that is simply not possible. For there to be peace, there must first be victory. There must first be victory. And what does the scripture teach? How will the prince of peace establish peace? Well, when he comes again, he will come riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven. And he will destroy the enemies of God. And Satan and the demons will be cast into the lake of fire along with all who join in their rebellion. And that is how the prince of peace will establish peace. Exodus chapter 15 says the phrase, Yahweh is a warrior. Jesus is the prince of peace, but let us not forget that peace requires the defeat of evil. Lasting true peace requires the defeat of evil. It is only when Satan, his demons, and all who follow them are in the lake of fire, when all of Christ's enemies have been made a footstool for his feet, as is prophesied in Psalm 110 and repeated multiple times in the New Testament. Only then will there be true and complete and lasting peace, and that will be when peace is restored for the first time since the rebellion of Satan. There has been no world peace since the rebellion of Satan, and there will be no world peace until he and those who join him are defeated. By the way, what is the Lord doing right now, though? That day is coming. It's called, you know, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath and his vengeance is coming. The day when the king will ride with the armies of heaven, this time not to save, but to destroy. But in his love and compassion and mercy, what is he doing? The scripture says he's not willing that any should perish, but all who should come to repentance. It says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, so he is sending us out as what? As ambassadors who go out, and it says we are ambassadors for Christ as if God was making an appeal through us. And what's the appeal? It says we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Pass from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Repent of your rebellion and come back to the light before it's too late. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee to the cross. Flee to the good news of the gospel. King is coming, and he is the prince of peace. You don't want to be one of the ones that are preventing that peace through your evil and rebellion. Well, let's move on to verse 7. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. So what now is the summary of this prophecy? And in verse seven, we receive four pieces of information about the final results of the Messiah's mission. What's kind of the end goal? It says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, will accomplish this. And so verse 7 gives us four pieces of information about the final results of the Messiah's mission. First of all, the Messiah will reign on David's throne in Israel. Right? It says he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. By the way, a lot of our 
brothers and sisters in Christ in different denominations, they allegorize these statements. Well, you know, Jesus reigning on the throne of David and over David's kingdom, it's just kind of a nice way of saying that, you know, Jesus is the ruler of all. You know, once you start allegorizing things, there are so much, there's so much said about this coming kingdom, so much said about the connection between David and his throne and his kingdom and what Jesus is going to be and do that you will have to allegorize huge portions of the scripture. The statement is clear. The Messiah will reign, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. The Messiah will reign. Second, that kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, his reign, has a clear beginning point. Look at the next phrase in verse 7. It says, to establish it. It has a clear beginning point. There will be an inauguration of the Messiah's reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This kingdom has a clear beginning point. Third, the Messiah's kingdom, once established, will be upheld for the rest of time. It says that he will uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on. So from its establishment, from then on, it will be upheld. This kingdom will be upheld. And then fourth, the Messiah's kingdom will continue then into the eternal state. Notice it says he will uphold it from then, the inauguration, the establishment, from then on through the rest of time and then forevermore. This is a very um, important reference to how after the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, there's a final rebellion and then the the, the heavens and the earth are destroyed the new heavens and the new earth are created and the messianic kingdom continues from the thousand year reign of Christ on this earth into the eternal state and the new heavens and the new earth he will reign from then on and into the eternal state forevermore so Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 is a, a vital verse that provides great information which along with many many other passages Old Testament and New helps us to summarize the end times events prophesied in scripture. And I'll just give you kind of a, a summary. And obviously I'm drawing from many other portions of scripture as well. But the summary of the end times is, is this. After the rapture of the church, there will be seven years of tribulation. And then the Lord will return and establish, as prophesied here, his kingdom. And he will rule from the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years. After the millennial kingdom that lasts for a thousand years, there will be a final satanic rebellion at which time the present heavens and earth will be destroyed and then the kingdom of Christ will continue on the new heavens and new earth in the eternal state forever. And as I said, that transition from the millennial reign into the eternal state is beautifully and carefully described with the language which appears at the end of verse seven when it says that he will uphold his kingdom from then on and forevermore. Now the question I wanna ask, and it's the last question I wanna ask of this section is, how could believers in Isaiah's day who were still waiting for the first coming of Christ be sure that not only those events will occur but also the end times events will occur? How could they be sure that nothing would thwart God's plan? And for us who are here, the first coming events have already been fulfilled but the second coming events are still future to us. How can we be sure that nothing will thwart God's plan? How can we be sure that these things will happen? And verse seven in the last phrase gives us the answer. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will accomplish this. This is saying that the omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful, sovereign power of God and his zealous intent will ensure that this takes place. And by the way, also pulled into that promise are the armies of heaven, the hosts of heaven. The zeal of Yahweh of the heavenly armies will accomplish this. This is a power too strong for anyone or anything to stop. These things will take place. And the Lord has promised it based upon his own power. Well, that is the glorious peak of the coming ruler. I want to end by just reading to you the next section, making a few brief comments in order to kind of set the stage for next week. Look at the next section is another valley, and it's entitled The Rod in chapter 9, verse 8, all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. So let me read the first section here, chapter 9, verse 8. It says, The Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel, and all the people know it, that is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we'll rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord raises against them adversaries from Rezin and spurs their enemies on. The Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush, in a single day. The head is the elder and the honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame and they roll upward in a column of smoke. By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. They slice off what is on the right hand, but still are hungry, and they eat what is on the left hand, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. In this section, God gives four reasons why he's using Assyria as a rod to punish his wayward people. He's punishing them because of their pride, chapter 9, verses 8 through 12, because they follow false teachers, verses 13 through 17, because they devour one another, verses 18 through 21, and because they oppress the helpless 
in chapter 10, verses one through four. And after these four reasons are given why judgment is coming, the same sobering phrase is repeated four times in a row. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. That appears in chapter nine, verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse four. This is why the punishment is coming. But how does the punishment come? And the next section says that God picks up Assyria like a rod to punish his rebellious child, Israel. This is chapter 10, verses five through 19. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather its purpose is to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish, or Hamath like Arpad, or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this, for I have understanding. And I have removed the boundaries of the people and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants and my hand reached to the riches of the people like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth and there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. And then God says to him, is the ax to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame and the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day and he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. This is God's judgment on Assyria. God had picked up Assyria as a rod to punish his wayward child. Why did he choose Assyria as the rod? Because that's what the people had chosen. Remember, they had turned to the wicked king of Assyria for help, and they had said to the king of Assyria, come and rescue us. They thought the Assyrians would be their rescuers, but really Assyria was the rod. God gave them what they wanted. They wanted Assyria, and they got Assyria. God often gives us what we want and what we want winds up being our punishment the rod in the hand of the Lord but because the Assyrians were so wicked and because they exalted themselves above the Lord and accused him of abandoning his people and of being helpless God says after I'm done using the rod to punish my wayward son that rod will be cast into the fire and be completely destroyed. And this, by the way, was a near-term prophecy. This took place, and we'll cover that later on in the book. Next week, we're gonna 
rise from this valley of the rod of punishment back up to the messianic hope of the great restoration. And we're gonna look at four glorious vistas of God's future plans for salvation and hope. But as we close, let me ask you, are you in the valleys of judgment? Or are you on the mountain peak of messianic hope? Scripture says that God lifts us from one to the other by grace through faith. That is our great hope. Lord, as we read these things, our hearts are reminded of the good news of the gospel that if we will but humble ourselves, you will exalt us. If we will but confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us our sins. If we will but call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. And so, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace for we, like the people discussed in the book of Isaiah, are sinners and rebels, those who have turned from you and therefore are reliant solely and completely on your mercy and grace. And we thank you that you displayed it through a child born to us, a son given to us, the coming king upon who whose shoulders the government will rest, the prince of peace, and it is he we worship and him we follow and give you praise in Jesus' name, amen.